Broadway is my beat, is my beat. From Times Square to Columbus Circle. The gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest old-time radio show in the world. Welcome to Broadway Is My Beat Is My Beat, the only recap podcast dedicated to the old-time radio detective show Broadway Is My Beat. I'm your host, Adam Cecil. I write Nightwater, a late-night pop culture newsletter full of refreshing content to quench your thirst. And you can find out more and subscribe at nightwater.email. That is a URL, nightwater.email. But for now, close your eyes. And imagine a world before email newsletters, before podcasts, before the internet. It's 1949. The centerpiece of your living room is a large box with a few dials and a massive speaker grill on the front. It's the radio. And that's how you get your daily dose of fiction entertainment. Television is not yet the medium of choice for scripted shows and listeners can tune into everything from westerns to crime dramas to spy thrillers to family comedies to superhero serials. Today, we're going to be recapping an episode of Broadway Is My Beat, which was a crime drama that ran on CBS from 1949 to 1954, uh, originally starring Anthony Ross as Detective Danny Clover. The production moved from New York to L.A. three months into the run with Larry Thor taking over for Ross and the new writers Martin Fine and David Friedkin inheriting the show. It's a very melancholy show, as you'll hear later on. It's most well known for these monologues from Clover, where he philosophizes on life, crime, and and the city. Very, very dramatic. My guest today, uh, who will be joining me to discuss the show, is Drew Ackerman. He's the creator, writer, and host of the Sleep With Me podcast, the podcast that puts you to sleep. He has recorded over a thousand episodes of bedtime stories for adults since 2013 including one based on nightwater which you can find in our feed uh, or his feed so we're going to be discussing the episode the ben justin murder case ignore me later in the episode when i call it the ben justin case you got to throw murder in there in my opinion Uh, If you want to listen to it before you hear our discussion, you can find a link to the episode on archive.org in our show notes, or you can head to the episode page on nightwater.email. I've embedded the entire file on the site for your listening pleasure. And we'll also be playing plenty of clips from the episode during our discussion. So if you don't want to listen to it, you know, wait for the clips. All right. Without further ado, let's get into our conversation about Broadway is my beat. Drew Ackerman, welcome to Broadway Is My Beat, Is My Beat. Would love to just hear a little bit about you and, and sleep with me and, uh, you know, your relationship to uh, the recap podcast, because sleep with me in in some ways is a, is a recap podcast. Yeah, I was uh, before we we got on today, I was trying to recap the name. Of, I'm like, is it My Beat Is Broadway Is My Beat or Broadway Is My Beat Is My Beat or Broadway? My, and so... And that's kind of uh, my skill set is misremembering enough details in TV recaps. I make a show called Sleep With Me that's a bedtime story podcast for adults. 
it's kind of like calling your weird friend on the phone and talking to them and you're not listening to them and they're just saying, hey, tell me about this old time radio show you listen to. But instead of covering stuff that's maybe actually interesting or the exciting parts, I just drone on and on and on. Uh, even in our discussion, I'm sure I was tempted to go too deep on on things and be like, okay, is this really going to be necessary uh, for this discussion? But uh, deep in the details so that you don't have to listen uh, is my kind of recapping. I know that you know part of the origin story for Sleep With Me is that when you were a kid, you know, you used to listen to like comedy radio to help you fall asleep. Um, so I'm curious about like your relationship with radio, like whether you ever listened to like old time radio, like, uh, you know, these kind of fiction shows. Yeah. So I was glad you asked that because I have three very specific old time radio memories. My brother was really big into listening to it and we shared a room. So I'd kind of listen to it with him, but it was I guess I would pay too much attention, so it didn't necessarily help me sleep as, as so much to just kind of chill out and lie in our beds. And then when I was growing up, if you donated to NPR, you usually got this extra catalog. I think it was called Signals, and it was like stuff NPR adjacent you could buy, uh, like Lake Wobegon, like recordings and, and a lot of old-time radio stuff. And so I would page through that and be like, one day – when I'm like uh, have a hundred thousand dollars or whatever, I- I'm gonna like buy start listening to all this old time radio. So those are two memories. The most specific one I have has to do with the bathroom. <laughs> I was visiting Emerson College as a high school senior, and you like stay overnight there to decide. Oh, is this the right school for me or whatever? And it a lot of their dorms were built into like these old uh, S like single room occupancy hotels. So like with a European style bathroom at the end of the hall and only like one bathroom for like 20 rooms. And I had to go to the bathroom and I, I knocked on the door and, and, and no one responded, but I, I was like, oh, okay, I'll wait. And, and I could hear two things in there. There was a bathtub, which is very rare for a college dorm bathroom. And someone was in the bathtub listening to old time radio. And so I was had this experience of like, uh, uh, like just sitting there now, like as a as an audio spectator, listening to the sounds of the tub, and this person just imagining them in there, uh, chilling out, listening to old time radio. And anytime I think of old time radio, I think of like someone. Hopefully, the how they were listening was like on a sink in a safe distance. If you're listening, kids. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, no slippage there. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, given your history and kind of what you heard on the radio. Was this your first time hearing Broadway is my beat? It was. And uh, so this is my first taste of, uh, of uh, Clover level action. And it was uh, awesome. Yeah. What would you say, you know, struck you about it that was maybe different or interesting than uh, what you've heard before? Huh, what was different about it? I mean, definitely the structure of the show with uh, these kind of poetic interludes, uh, and then the kind of the detective style action, it it was really cool. Like, uh, and that was something that I didn't expect and was very different was like how he kind of waxes, uh, it does these kind of monologues and then how it changes. And then just as someone who makes a podcast, there was so much to listen to that was interesting to me of how they use music and sound effects. And then so much stuff that made me curious. And as I've listened to the episode a few times, again struck by that 
even if like, like on a subconscious level, how it really was theater of mind, like I was picturing replaying different scenes and I could see them playing out and, and what people were wearing and stuff. Yeah. I think, you know, that, that unique kind of, uh, waxing poetic the monologues the purple prose however you want to describe it definitely sets it apart from other detective shows of the era um which is so much fun and also you know i think someone who makes you know fiction podcasts today a really hard thing is you know bringing your audience with you from place to place you know when you can't use visuals to say like okay we're at a different location now and kind of hearing in this episode, you know, there's very early on like an ambulance ride and he's, you know, taking you all over, you know, taking you all over the city and then like taking you to the police station. And and it all kind of happens so fluidly um, that you don't even realize that it's happening uh, if you're not paying attention. So pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. It's like I always don't know what to call it, but it's like the idea of show don't tell like they, they do it so well in this episode and then I wasn't even thinking about it until you just said that, like that his monologues kind of create the environment. Because since this was a holiday season episode, it was like they didn't have to add any more any more of those details because my brain, my, my imagination was filling them in. It was like, oh, they didn't have to talk about the weather too much or the sounds of the streets or uh, set the total scene because it was art. The table was already set. Yeah, totally, and the. Uh... It's funny, you know, show not tell because you you can't really show. You have to you have to tell. <laughs> they just do these hyper specific details, and you get this bigger picture of what New York was like uh, on the streets in 1950. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And the monologue, how it's it's. I mean, I guess it's hard for me not to project onto the episode too, but it's like it's kind of like fun in in a sense because it's like men in beards and red velvet suits or whatever, and, and, <laughs> and it's like uh, it, it adds a layer of like indirectness that that makes it enjoyable or whatever. Like I'm a tough guy, and this is how I talk about Christmas, man. Let's jump into that that recap. Uh, so this episode. It's a bit tough. It's interesting looking online and like looking at information about like, okay, when did episodes air? You know, were there any official titles? A lot of um, episodes from, or a lot of, you know, radio shows from this era, it's like they don't have official titles or you're kind of looking through um, different materials that might uh, conflict. But as far as I can tell, this is generally agreed to be called the Ben Justin case. Uh, and it was originally aired on December 8th, 1950, which was, uh, let's see, 72 years ago yesterday, um, as of recording, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> wow. Pretty sure every one of these episodes starts with some variation of I'll take Manhattan or Manhattan, whatever you want to call it, an old jazz standard. Um, and it very nicely uh, just goes into the car horns and then um you know every every episode kind of starts with these iconic uh iconic lines where he goes uh broadway's my beat from times square to columbus circle the gaudiest the most violent the lonesomest mile in the world could yeah i don't know if it, i don't know if i agree that that's the lonesomest mile in the world but <laughs> Maybe internally, it's still, like we're together alone or whatever. Especially now with everybody having their phones or their AirPods or whatever. But I think like that that sets the stage very effectively in terms of this, you know, kind of moody jazz number, and then you just get this thing of um, this vision of New York as kind of this uh, hellhole of crime. <laughs> right. It's like sets the environment, and then it 
it goes straight into the action too, which I really like. It's like uh, this is all you need to know. And uh, New York Broadway's is a bad place. And here we go. So yeah, so it starts with the Christmas monologue as we've already talked. Uh, Larry Thor is Detective Danny Clover, who is our uh, main protagonist here i kind of find that there's two christmas monologues here one right at the start and then one after the commercial break and both of them don't really connect with the rest of the plot whatsoever so it's 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 very much so feels like the writers had this story and then we're like oh shit it comes out on uh, december 8th we need to write something about christmas right right (laughs) oh yeah we better shoehorn this in uh, to set the mood so so everybody will be happy When it's December and the winter has caught hold, Broadway comes up with a miracle. Silver trees grow out of the sidewalks. Men with beards and red velvet suits suddenly appear from out of the Bowery and dedicate themselves to being jolly. And reindeer roam the tundra of the spectaculars. It's a time of Crosby records, noses against department store windows, and wishing you'd kept up the Christmas club payments. Everybody's happy. Even the finance company sends you season's greetings. So the police have found a man dying. His name is uh, Ben Justin. They find uh, his wallet. He is still alive, and he was shot. Um, an interesting thing, I saw someone note this in the in the comments section, actually, on archive.org, but an interesting thing about this show is it <laughs> reveals that first aid is just not a thing in the 1950s. <laughs> like, the police get there, and they just watch this man die until the ambulance <laughs> arrives, uh, which is maybe accurate to today as well, but... You know, they get him in the ambulance and Detective Danny Clover is trying to get Ben Justin to say uh, who who shot him. You know, he's kind of I think he's lying there and he's, you know, saying, like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to kill him. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to get him. And he's like, who did this to you? Who did this to you? And then he dies in the ambulance. Yeah, there's some great sound effects in there, which is something that is. And, and I, I guess I do they record these shows lot like they were live or was it like pre-recorded and then broadcast i think it was pre-recorded and then broadcast but you know i don't really know a lot about um old-time radio production i'm pr- I'm pretty sure there were some shows that were more um live in studio but i'm pretty sure they you know this is so well sound designed that i can't mm-hmm. imagine someone doing it live <laughs> yeah and the sound design is like I mean, there's actual Foley, or, or I'm assuming it's actual Foley. I, I did hear like a record scratch or like a, a little bit of a record sound, but I don't know if that's from the recording. I'm like, oh, is they are they playing sound effects on records too? And it, it producing them like, now we're in this age of practical effects and green screens. And I'm like, oh, there's practical sound effects in this thing. It's so cool. And, uh, and yeah, it, 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 then it transitions to the ambulance. It does really help paint the picture. And then the ambulance sound and uh, Ben's Justin's dying uh, voice acting is, uh, I, I, yeah, it was uh, it was all right. Like, uh, but uh, <laughs> we got another. You know, I mentioned this uh, Danny Clover monologue. Um, you know, essentially he's tracking the ambulance through the city. Um, you know, he a couple of great lines here. You know, he says, you know, the rhythm of death is slow. Um, uh, they they. St- you know, they turn off the lights. So the ambulance is just driving, you know, through the city regularly. So, you know, he says at a stop because death in the city must wait its turn. Um, And it really paints the picture of like, you know, this uncaring 
urban environment where you have, you know, this man who's just been murdered and then like people just living their, their best lives, <laughs> you know, just surrounding the ambulance, which I thought was, you know, sometimes it does feel like that living in the city where it's just like, you know, you have no idea what's going on around you and, you know, tragedy and, and happiness, you know, live side by side. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, this must've been where the writers just loved it. Like between, I mean, cause they write so much dialogue and then they're like, Oh yeah, we get to really dive in here. And I wonder how much editing, like even the language is always good. It's like, I think they use furtive or furtive glimpse of pain. Oh, I'm like, Holy cow. Uh, uh, and then it sets the, it goes from the city to the police station and this was a question I had too, which I didn't have a chance to research. It's like he's typing in triplicate, and I'm like, man, did you see? It? Did they have carbon copies, or was he typing that up three different times at his typewriter? <laughs> uh, the the non romantic part of being uh, Danny Clover. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I, I noted that turn of phrase, and I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder like what the actual process was for having to type out all of all of these files. <laughs> We get back to the police station, and then he goes out to see uh, the widow of Ben Justin, who is Evelyn Justin. This was a little bit. This was a little bit funny. I thought Evelyn Justin here, kind of a classic noir, you know, femme fatale, very much inspired by that. But it seemed may, maybe it makes more sense once we know more information about her later. But it just seems so out of character, <laughs> so odd. <laughs> No, I definitely agree. Like it was like, I mean, I guess the benefit of re-listening to it over and over again is like, then you're pitch- a picture in like this bathrobe, like with the martini and stuff. But the first listen, it's like, wait a second, what? Like, yeah. Ben didn't tell you? He was bleeding to death and he wouldn't tell you who killed him? No, Mrs. Justin. I like him for that. For a lot of other reasons, but this one's the best. And you will want to help us find his murderer. No, uh-uh, that's your job. That's what you get paid for. They shot him down in an alley. Sorry, they- but that's how I feel about things. So if you're listening to this recap and you don't know what happens, it's very odd. If you do, if you do know what happens at the end, then maybe it makes a little bit more sense. We uh, we find out that Ben worked for Imperial Insurance uh, down on the Lower East Side. She she seems very uh, anti-cop, which I guess puts her very much in the 2022 zeitgeist. Yeah, it's just strange that she's like an obstacle, like like you're saying when it's like, oh, like wouldn't you be? Uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting emotions uh, uh, between her and the insurance company where it's like, okay, wouldn't you be worried? Or she's like playing it tough. And maybe there's stuff cut from the show of like Ben's backstory that he was a tougher guy. Uh, or maybe there was, I don't know if, was there ever an old time radio show about a hard nosed insurance investigator? Oh, there is actually. Uh, <laughs> um, well, if I'm remembering correctly, I think. I think it's called Johnny Dollar and it's um it's uh really funny because his whole thing is that uh he has this expense account um so his like his he has his rate and then he has the expense account and uh throughout the episode he's updating you on how much he's spent out of the expense account. <laughs> but yeah, there it it is interesting. I mean, then um, we get to the actual insurance company and there too, it's even, um, you know, a bit of uh, obstacle, like you've said. And I think you get kind of a, almost like a law and order or CSI vibe out of this where the interviewee is like super nonchalant. You know, he he's talking about, oh, you know, I just want my coffee and breakfast before answering uh, questions. 
and you know he really has to kind of work it out of him like oh like do you know anything about about this guy yeah, the the insurance guy that runs the insurance company has got to be the worst boss ever. Like his top concerns are breakfast that he didn't get breakfast. I can't do anything till I have my breakfast and my coffee. And it's like, dude, this guy we used to work here, he's dead. He got murdered. You're not even curious. Like, uh, like, like, no. Well, after I get my breakfast, I'll be curious. Yeah, I think if I worked for Imperial Insurance and uh, got murdered, and that was how my boss reacted, I would be pretty devastated (laughs) yeah adam after breakfast we'll cover his uh his death in an alley so we get this whole backstory in terms of uh the colton murder case so uh this woman named mrs colton potentially uh, allegedly was murdered by her by her nephew and his wife uh, for the insurance money and so ben was investigating that murder um apparently uh in in parallel with the police, the cops couldn't find any proof that they had committed the murder, uh, and neither could Ben. Uh, he turns in the paperwork, says they shouldn't, they should get paid the hundred thousand dollars insurance payout, which I didn't actually did not do the inflation math on this one, but that would be, um, I think, a lot of money today. Uh, and then he resigns from uh, the insurance company. And then, according to the boss, uh, they hear he's been running around uh, with those kids, the uh, the Reed kids, the nephew and wife. I think uh, you noted the phrase they've been making merry with the Reed kids. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I mean, that's just a classic, like making merry, uh, like say it in this diminutive way, uh, but also it's just hilarious. And I guess if we had Johnny Dollar on the case, this would our then then we, it would be resolved. Uh, but Ben Justin uh, seems to have other motives. Absolutely, right from the get go, we get this idea that there's something fishy about the murder case, uh, the the pre the Colton murder case, and the way that that Ben um, was involved with in it. Mr. Kogan, who is the boss man at the Imperial Insurance Company, he does finally uh, get a dime for his coffee from Danny, which would be a dollar fifteen today, or there a dollar nineteen today? I think we've calculated. And you were wondering, you wrote in our notes here, how much is a coffee today? I walked past a coffee stall in the upper east upper east side this morning, and a small coffee was a dollar fifty. So, mm. a little bit of inflation, a little bit of greedflation, sounds like. I'm sure that coffee was uh, back then was uh, very powerful, but uh, very uh, the taste would take some adjusting today. All right, so then we finally get to the Reed kids. Oh, uh, this is Danny Clover, Daddy's from the police. I'll be honest with you, Mister Clover. I'm busy. Well, just a few questions about Ben Justin. <laughs> Guess I'm right, Daddy. Huh? Soon as I saw this morning's paper, I told you a policeman would be twirling his hat at the door. Then you talk to him, Johnny. I've got to get my work done. I'm afraid you'll have to hold it off for about five minutes, Ms. Reed. Do you have a warrant? Very interesting characters. Uh, right off the bat, Johnny, uh, who's the nephew, you know, kind of reveals, you know, I know the drill when it comes to police questioning. His wife, Dottie, I believe it was, I couldn't tell if it was Do- Dottie or Dolly. I heard it both ways. <laughs> but yeah. I'm going with Dottie because I think that's more fun. She's very skeptical and upset about Danny's presence, you know, and they also say, you know, they didn't like Ben Justin. Uh, ben Justin thought they were buddy-buddy. You know, I think uh, he says something like, you know, we shook hands at the end of the investigation. And he took that to mean friend. 
they say i think she says we yawned or he says we yawned in his face is that when this is like yeah they're like trying to get him out of the house yeah, like he probably stayed past his bed. Their bed. They're like, dude, we got to go to bed. Like, uh, <laughs> we've got we've got to get to the horse track tomorrow or whatever. Uh, and he just, uh, yeah, Ben John or Ben Justin does not come off well, I guess. With this, uh, yeah, his wife doesn't care that he's dead. Uh, you know, the, his boss doesn't care. The Reed kids are pretending they don't know him. Doesn't seem like a doesn't seem like the most loved guy in the world, right? But yeah, so then. Danny asks about the inheritance. Dottie gets hot and uh, kind of starts yelling like, oh, when are people going to leave us alone about this? You know, proven innocent, all that, yada, yada, yada. So Drew, you know, so far, how are you feeling about uh, about the plot? About we, We've been introduced to all of the major, all the major players. Um, do you have kind of an inkling of where things might go? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Johnny and Dottie uh, do seem like a little bit, they're tough, tough routine. I mean, definitely it's like, okay, will we hear from them again? Plus, I really enjoyed their, uh, like, they really lean in. Uh, Like, I was like, I don't know, both those characters, even though they're only in the show briefly, and I guess they're guest actors or whatever, it was just, they were so fun. Uh, and so it's like, oh, I hope hope we hear from they get them again because they're like, oh, you're not going to frame us, uh, or th- there's just not even flowers. They say when they don't didn't go to his funeral. Like, uh, yeah, I guess I was wondering. Okay, I mean, they do set it up in a procedural way, like you're saying with CSI, uh, and you're like, oh, is this a misdirection or not? Of like, oh, well, they got off in this one case on a technicality. Uh, but so we suspect them and they're like, oh, it wasn't us. Uh, and I think traditionally nowadays that's kind of like a red herring. So I was like, oh, what is this? Like, uh, wh- where is this going? And, and uh, I, I mean, definitely you're rooting for, for him to bust somebody at this point. Because uh, you're like Team Clover. Team Clover all the way. So we're going back uh, after this interview, back to the police station uh, Danny is poring over the transcripts of the Colton murder case. And so there's another police officer, uh, Mugovan, who's the, you know, the same guy that Danny was talking to at the top of the episode who uh, discovered uh, Ben Justin or got to the scene first. Uh, it's, a, it's a funny little line. Uh, Mugovan uh, is kind of like, oh, how, how many times are you going to pour over that transcript? And he, and he offers him a, a detective uh, pulp uh, novel, you know, one of those cheap uh, you know, di- nickel or uh, dime store uh, novels. And he says, for two bits, it thrills even me, which I thought was <laughs> pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, is it like they're, uh, is that like back then would have been like something meta, like a little sneak joke too of like, ha ha, like now you're tuning into it. it, it it's cool. So here's here's kind of, we get, you know, all the details of the case here from, uh from Danny. And Mrs. Colton was killed with Johnny Reed's gun, but there were no fingerprints on the gun. Um, he did have a gun for work. Uh, he was a messenger boy for a brokerage house. And so, uh, you know, Magavan is saying, you know, he needs a gun. You know, he's got all this money and stocks on him. Like, he needs protection. A boy needs a gun. That's just exact. I was like, that's another... A, the boy, a boy needs a gun. Uh, when he said that kind of career or whatever, I was like, "Oh my god, work sanctioned." His work gave it to him. You know, you otherwise you'd be like, "Well, why does he have a gun?" But you know, 
he says potentially the gun was stolen from him. The the Reed kids say they were picnicking out in Jersey in the Palisades, uh, and no one can prove otherwise. Eating ham and cheese sandwiches. That that's what that's a detail uh, at some point that comes up. I was like, oh wow, like uh, they had their story straight. Like that wasn't wasn't I'm eating turkey and he's eating ham. So <laughs> yeah, and you found some nice uh, some nice pictures from the time period, which are which are pretty fun to look through. Um, but a popular picnic spot in, is the Palisades, apparently. Yeah, it looked beautiful. Yeah, the police didn't have evidence. The insurance company, which is you know even maybe even more uh, incentivized to not pay out this hundred thousand dollars than the police are to actually uh, convict this guy, you know that that pretty much got them off scot free. And then we get a little bit of drama. We got Sergeant Tarta- uh, Sergeant Tartaglia. I always get yeah, it's Gino Tartaglia, who's a bit of the comic relief clown kind of character. He comes in saying Danny needs to go to Evelyn Justin's house, uh, and she just called in saying that someone was trying to kill her. And so Danny and Mugovan head down to Evelyn Justin's apartment. The door is locked. They ring the bell. Lean on the bell, Mugovan. Yeah. Danny! Danny, something happened. Kick it in. Mrs. Justin! Watch it, Danny. The place is a furnace! Mrs. Justin! Oh, Danny, you can't go in there. Don't be crazy! Yeah. I don't understand. What happened? We ring the bell, we blow the place up. Yeah, oh man. This was this was the first thing that was felt a little bit melodramatic. First he says right before they get in the car, it's a cold ride. Or grab your jacket, it's gonna cold ride. I mean it's the story flows, but it's like you're not like it, an explosion would get my attention in some way beyond like we got to interview this lady one more time it's uh but i just like the timing and it was a cliffhanger because it's like i mean it's a pretty big cliffhanger an apartment blowing up uh even it nowadays like it almost felt like um there was a show called 24 uh that uh, uh Kiefer sutherland was in and each season it got more and more over the top but they would constantly at every ad break they had cliffhangers that you're like i guess i gotta watch because this doesn't make any sense at all so i have to see why this happened or what the 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 logic behind it is yeah was it uh was it er or Grey's anatomy where like a helicopter crashes into the hospital or something (laughs) like you know you always have to keep upping upping the drama and this this one was funny because it definitely felt like it just kind of came out of left field where it's like there's an explosion, but like somehow the front door is totally fine, you know, so they still have to kick it down and then they get in there and it's like everything's on fire, but like the building is fine. Um, and then even later, like, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see, like, it doesn't seem to totally destroy all of the physical evidence. So uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was like out of the ordinary. So like uh it maybe creates word of mouth like you're like did you did you hear it last night no no i was listening to hop whatever hop along cassidy what <laughs> they blew up the apartment blew up uh, uh you gotta listen next week now yeah absolutely absolutely all right so we're we're kicking to a commercial break here you just mentioned hop along cassidy we got a commercial for a hop along cassidy show tomorrow night every saturday evening hop along cassidy so i guess we're listening to it on a friday so what do we, you know, I think we we just checked in, but now we have another dead body on top of Ben Justin and Mrs. Colton. Um, we kind of know the facts of this this case. 
now we're halfway through any theories, any kind of guesstimations on what might happen here in the second half? I mean, I'm definitely worried. I mean, now the stakes have been raised. So it's like, holy cow, now it really is like, even though Ben Justin died, I'm like, eh, yeah, his boss, nobody cared about that except for, uh, but now this apartment's been blown up. It's like, wow, there must be really something cool at stake here. Uh, so I think, I think even though it was a bit ridiculous, it's like, it was dramatic enough to be like, holy cow, like someone has some reason for, for, uh, blowing up, uh, Evelyn. So will we find out who it is or is it going to be somebody new? So it worked in some sense, even though I'm joking about it, I was like, <laughs> whoa, uh, that's unexpected and big. Like, like what's going to come next? Yeah, it's a bit unexpected because even though Evelyn was kind of weird up at the top of the episode, you don't necessarily assume that she's going to be in- involved and that you know that she would need to be murdered in any way. I, I definitely thought it was ooh, it's a bit a bit surprising where where we're going to take it. Coming back from the break, we get another kind of holiday monologue, some jazz music. Uh, this is another kind of a weird one. He talks about uh, the dissonance of death when every, everyone else in the city is celebrating Christmas. It makes glints in the winter's sun, sways gently in the winter's wind. And it makes you all warm inside, doesn't it, kid? The warm-eyed women walking by, hugging the warm fur close to them. Makes you merry. And the music floating out of the metallic throats. Good, huh, kid? But turn it up. That way you won't hear the dissonance of death. That way it won't intrude, that explosion uptown. Anyone killed? No one knows yet, but when they do, it'll be given to you. Hot off the presses, shining from the Translux, gift-wrapped with red ribbons. Yeah, this one he's talking like direct, because he says, doesn't it, kid, or something? It's like it's like he's talking directly to you on this one. Oh, that's funny. I kind of heard it as he's talking to like a kid on the street. Like he's just kind of wandering the street, just kind of angry at any child that kind of comes across, (laughs) comes across. (laughs) I like that. I like that. So we go back to the apartment. Um, So this is uh, after the fire department has taken a look, uh, you know, gotten the fire out. Um, It's destroyed. They find Mrs. Justin's body in the kitchen Danny somehow is able to, you know, do some kind of like criminal minds or like Hannibal kind of uh, mind palace thing and say like, oh, before before she was blown up, um, you know, she was beaten up first. She was knocked out cold and and then they uh, rang the doorbell. So, you know, it's not uh, it's not their fault necessarily that they, <laughs> they rang the doorbell and killed her. Um, you know, she was left to die. And so they rule it a homicide. Uh, which is the big, big twist here. Call it into homicide. Because all those accidental apartment explosions uh, that are <laughs> the doorbell tr- with the stove on, the pilot light goes out and the uh, electric from the doorbell blows up the apartment. So that's a common occurrence in New York. Honestly, you know, with the way the safety regulations were, uh <laughs> all those janky electrical wires. <laughs> right, right. Or your mother, like, you're, you're, it's like, oh, no, don't get one of those electric doorbells. Like, a knocker's just fine for me. Too much risk. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, there's still, like, pretty much every stove in New York is still gas. So um, I'm surprised there aren't more apartment explosions. 
we go back to the station we get this is our first real classic tartaglia bit which if you you know listen to more episodes of broadway as might be you'll get to know and love the tartaglia bits hi ho daddy i come bearing gifts from the boys in technical to you you thank them for me gino goes without saying christmas is coming danny courtesy is the motto of the season a fella has goes to goes without win- saying what have you got and we get these kind of uh, two big pieces of info, which are uh, Danny was correct. Mrs. Justin was uh, beat unconscious before the police arrived. And two, uh, the doorbell was rigged to a booby trap explosive. I thought that was, I was fun. It's been a long time since I've heard the word booby trap. And it was not a professional job. It was clumsy. He says it was a clumsy imitation. Gordon didn't like it, huh? He sniffed his nose at it. However, in the matter of an inferno machine, what matters clumsy, huh, Danny? <laughs> yeah, this way, like, uh, was a great example of that thing of like show don't tell in some sense or tell us because it's like so much is revealed about his character and how he interacts with Danny that I didn't even know all this, like, like that this is an ongoing thing. But Danny cuts him off. He's like, you know, a poet once said or whatever. And, and Danny's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, uh, also, since I make a sleep podcast, Strangely enough, the timing, I just did an episode about a Star Trek The Next Generation episode called Booby Trap. And I was like, first of all, what's a where did, the, where did this phrase come from? It turns out that sailors would eat a type of bird called a booby, uh, and that's the trap they used to catch them. Uh. Uh, but I tried to change it. I'm like, oh, is, is booby prize or booby surprise any less... Uh, like, like, I'm like, how am I going to overcome this so it's not upsetting to people? Yeah, to cl- to clarify the change, because it's funny you're saying like, because it's like in your show when you do recaps, you try not to have anything like explosives or you know death or anything that you know as you're trying to fall asleep could be disturbing. Um, it's funny that you're when you think of the word like booby trap, you're like, okay, I need to change the word trap. That's the word that that's going to upset people, and so you come up with booby surprise, which I feel is a very different. <laughs> Very different. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I got. If you think about, I guess yeah. It's like I think there is booby prize, and I was like, well, now I got to Google booby prize because I think that's like when you throw darts and you see these this giant, um, like you go to a carnival and you see a giant bear, and you're like, oh, I want to win that bear, and then you 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 pay five bucks, and they're like they give you like something like you get out of a like in, in a box of cereal or a McDonald's toy that's a piece of plastic, and they're like. I want the bear. They, oh, if you win 10 times, you could get the bear. Oh, by the way, the booby was uh, rendered extinct by all those sailors uh, that were out <laughs> colonizing the world or whatever. And that's a, that's a bummer fact that won't make it to sleep with me, <laughs> as it might disturb you before <laughs> going to bed. <laughs> so then we get, uh, Danny asked Tartaglia, how did you know that the woman on the phone was Mrs. Justin? Which is, you know, kind of a thing that, you know, everything kind of happens so fast right before the commercial that, you know, oh, we don't even think about that. And uh, Tartaglia says, you know, she said her name, you know, several times. And he goes, uh, what reason would I have to disbelieve what a lady tells me? (laughs) Does he say like uh, Gull or Gulliver? I tried to. So I was like, I I was like, uh, but some sort of uh, be made a fool or something like that. Yeah. He says, like, oh, like you making a gulliver out of me or like do you do you take me for a gulliver and he makes another joke about it about danny later uh when when danny gets a phone call but uh 
Yeah, essentially, old old timey way of saying uh, like, oh, like, do you think I'm a fool for believing what this woman told me on the phone? <laughs> she said her name fourteen times. That is essentially, you know, that is essentially the the vision that we're getting here of this woman just kind of saying like, hello, it is me, Evelyn Justin. I am being murdered. Like, please come to my apartment right away. It again, just to reiterate, I am Evelyn Justin. Please ring the bell because I will be occupied as I'm being I'm in the midst of a struggle. So then we get a we get a phone call. This phone call. Um, we get a, a Swifty Crenshaw, incredible name. Uh, so Swifty is coming in, uh, calling in from the thirty fourth Street Post Office, and she he's holding some mail for Mrs. Justin. Hey, who was it, Danny? A Swifty Crenshaw from the post office. Swift Cren. See, see how you two can be a Gulliver, Danny. So we get to the post office. We're looking through the mail. Um, you know, a few Christmas cards from people who heed our message to mail early. I thought that was funny. Um, essentially, Swifty is going through all of the mail, looking at uh, what it is, what he can kind of get out of it. Postcards. Uh, I think you said some third class mail in there. Free grease job. Yesterday, just yesterday, she sent an envelope to herself. Uh, but uh, Swifty Crenshaw cannot tell us what is in the what is in the envelope. So. <laughs> Yeah, but also, like, it, it's a little disturbing, some of these details, that Swifty spends most of his time, like, writing fan fiction about people's uh, undelivered, like, he just goes through the post office box, looks at their stuff, starts to create stories or whatever. Oh, great, like, uh, she's got a library book, and that he also knows, because he's tried to read the mail inside of, he's like, oh, you can't read that one because it's in a manila envelope. It's like, I tried. Uh, I tried to see what it was. We need to get uh, a- another episode about the post office an investigation there. Yeah, for sure. You need like um, that Seinfeld level kind of thing where uh, Newman is doing the whole p- post office uh, investigation uh-huh. into Jerry. Yeah, I mean, this is like another thing. I mean, this is, I feel like, a classic kind of cop show kind of um genre thing as well that i think you're pretty if you watch any csi or ncis or anything you always have these kind of character actors or or actors that come in and do these bit roles that are just like kind of just wild like really you know out there kind of characters and i you know it's interesting listening to a lot of these radio shows because it's like these genre beats have not really changed over the course of 70 years you know they're pretty much exact you know you can imagine a swifty crenshaw who goes through the mail on you know, NCIS. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, and uh, it, it, like, and if you think about it, like this uses a, like a music to do a transition to where they've just cut down the amount of music they use to like four notes. Uh, uh, but it's still like, Oh, by the way, we're changing c- scenes and locations, bump, bump or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So we don't, uh, we don't know what's in it yet, but, Danny's back on the phone. He's talking to a guy named Mr. Jasper. So it seems like what was in the envelope was a carbon copy of a subscription form for Today's Lady magazine. And just an aside, I did look it up. Um, I found that there is a magazine called Today's Women, which is still publishing. uh, And it was around in the 1950s, but no Today's Lady. So if anyone listening to this, it happens to be a magazine history aficionado, uh, knows whether Today's Lady magazine was real or just a made up name so that they, uh, you know, wouldn't have to get sued by Today's Woman. uh, Please let me know. But the subscription form was signed by a DF, a guy named uh, Donald Fraser. Mr. Jasper on the phone is very curious. And he said, well, he, you know, 
why didn't he mail in this form? Danny gets uh, the address for Donald Fraser and uh, hangs hangs up the phone. So it's an interesting, weird development, I think, also back in the day when people would go around selling magazine subscriptions from door to door. <laughs> did you ever have to sell magazines or, or did you, you know, uh, I know as a kid sometimes, um, you know, I, I would have these things where we like sell magazine subscriptions as a uh, fundraiser, which I always thought was the most ridiculous thing in the world but yeah i remember doing that and then it actually helped me like because like it's a little bit ahead but they mentioned like points like that not only maybe you got paid in points and money but i was like oh like when i i had a newspaper route which i had only a basic understanding that you're basically running a business you're like buying the papers from the from the company or from your distributor and then you know charging people more for the paper or whatever and that's how you get paid as a paper boy but there was also a point system there but i was so terrible i i was not like somebody that was going out looking for new subscriptions and so we would have like a picnic every year and they would go through all the prizes all these other kids that were more uh, driven than i was they would get like <laughs> a new bike and, and a, a pogo stick and, and it must have been with those points uh so i found that caught my attention too that's really funny that's uh it's funny to be the, to be the lowly paper boy who's not uh, interested in <laughs> running this uh, child labor uh, racket. Right. We move on. Uh, we're moving pretty quickly. We're moving into uh, going to Donald Fraser's apartment. He uh, and Danny Clover is with Mugavin again, and we have this uh, moment where they're at the front door, and Mugavin is kind of debating about whether or not to ring the bell after the trauma of having killed Mrs. Justin accidentally. Yeah, he doesn't want to lean on the bell again. Uh, and then he gives that advice about uh, crash in an airplane, go up in an airplane again, I heard. And I was like, on the internet? Like, are you from the future? Because, like, that sounds like a terrible idea to me. If I crash in an airplane, I'm never getting on an airplane ever again. Like, uh, <laughs> or, or probably without, like, a therapist who's coaching me through it. But very, it, and then it goes into, it keeps going. I mean, this is where listening really was uh, rewarding, was even like this scene where they're kind of playing like tough cop, bad cop uh, is really uh, fun and and, like to the genre, but also funny in a sense, uh, because you know his personality from earlier, uh, where he's constantly making all these side comments. Yeah, and they they definitely do like a bit of a bad cop thing here because they essentially force their way into Donald's apartment. Um, you know, they're very they're being very aggressive around. Hey, you know, we know that you filled out the subscription form. It was the same day Mrs. Colton was shot. That's the you know that's the big reveal. The subscription was for Mrs. Colton, and it, it happened to be signed on the same day that uh, she was murdered, uh, or allegedly murdered. And so, what we get out of this is that Donald witnessed that the reed kids were there on that day with their aunt dotty signed a subscription form for mrs colton then ben, ben justin found this out and paid him a thousand dollars for that form instead of handing it in to into the company uh which i think you did the math so that would be around would be around uh twelve thousand dollars today twelve thousand five hundred and twenty one fifty cents yeah. So I don't know if this is the moral moral of the story, but if you like sell magazines, because he didn't know they were going to murder, murder, like he just said, somebody wants to buy this 
thing off me for $12,000, still not a good idea. Like, uh, like even though you'd say, this guy just wants to buy this off me, or, or how fast did he buy it off him, or turn in your subscriptions. I guess there's a lot of morals, but it's like, I can't, if he didn't hear about the murder, $12,000 in today's dollars for a person that's selling magazine subscriptions, that's a lot of money. Uh, and I don't know the, if there's a moral code of uh, door-to-door salespeople uh, that uh, they'd have to stick to. But, you know, there's un, unintended consequences or, or finds out in the end it was a bad idea. Yeah, I kind of thought $12,000 is not enough money to get embroiled in a uh, conspiracy around a murder. But, uh, you know, to each their own. Yeah, yeah. Probably good. That's a good life lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the timing was definitely interesting because it was like, okay, so... You know, Ben Justin was somehow able to track this guy down after Mrs. Coulter was shot, you know, within must have been just a few days. You know, he hadn't, um, you know, sent it into the company yet. Kind of an interesting thing. So we get we get to learn a bit more about Ben Justin here, which is that he's a pretty opportunistic guy. So he he's, you know, you know, who knows how old he is, but like he's been living his whole life. You know, he's a insurance uh insurance investigator you know above the books supposedly and then he just sees this opportunity in front of him where he says oh i can blackmail these murderers uh and i can hold you know the only piece of evidence which is this uh subscription which is pretty interesting it says a lot about ben justin our our initial murder <laughs> yeah he's a regular gumshoe he should have he could have had his own show if he didn't get taken out like uh so soon. The, he, he was taken from us too soon. And <laughs> Justin. All those silk clothes, though. I'm sure, yeah, he was like, this was his breaking point. Like, these silk clothes. I got a house full of silk dresses, silk bathrobes. Uh, I want a party with, like, uh, people that are more interesting. I'm not, you know, obviously he's not as interesting enough for Johnny and Dottie. So it all came to a head for him uh, with a magazine carbon copy. So we're 22 minutes in with about seven minutes to go. So they're very efficient storytelling so far. We just found out there's a witness tying uh, the Reed kids to the murder. Uh, And not only that, but there's actually physical evidence that there's like a witness there. Uh, Ben Justin's involved with some sort of blackmail scheme, but there's still no proof that's actually tying the Reeds to the Justin murders, uh, which occurred in this episode. Uh, even though it would make sense that they did, unless uh, we find out that the Imperial insurance guy was actually like, oh, we, you know, I hated Ben and I'm glad he's dead and I murdered him. <laughs> so then we get kind of the big, big final scene, this kind of last six minutes or so. Danny heads to the Reed home. Danny separates uh, Johnny and Dottie. Uh, they send Dottie to go get coffee in the kitchen. Uh, and he just starts making small talk with Johnny, nothing serious. Then he goes to help Dottie with the coffee in the kitchen. And he comes in and says, you're under arrest. And she just starts laughing at him uh, because the cops have already tried this tact on her before. They try to get them to confess. You know, they say, oh, you know, Johnny just told me everything. Dottie, you're under, you know, you're under arrest. Dottie and Johnny uh, make moves to throw him out. 
when Danny says that he has an early Christmas present for them. It is the signed magazine subscription form, and it's proof that they were at the house and the proof, the missing proof that the DA did not have at their trial. Um, and, and Danny says, you know, you thought that you had destroyed it when Dottie called headquarters pretending to be Mrs. Justin and had the police set off that booby trap. So I'm just going to let my cats out of the apart out of this room because they're crying now. Meow, meow. Meow. <laughs> they were sleeping so nicely and now it's get, it's getting dark. So they're like, all right, it's dinner time. So yeah, big, big, uh, big dramatic, uh, reveal. Johnny scoffs and offers to pay off Danny. Uh, Danny doesn't take it. You know, he wants them to sign a confession. And this, I thought was a very nice, clever thing, you know, um, Johnny has a gun and it kind of, it had the, we only ever hear the dialogue, you know, no narrator is ever coming in and saying like, Oh, and by the way, Johnny has a gun pointing at, uh, Danny, but we get this like nice piece of dialogue that reveals that he has a gun pointed straight at Danny. Merry Christmas, Danny. How much you want? How much for you paying Justin before you killed him? Don't bargain. How much? All of it. Everything you got. I want you to sign a confession, you and your wife. Let me sit down. Think about it. Serve the coffee, Daddy. You gonna stir it with that gun? No. I'm gonna kill you with the gun. You want one slug or two? Johnny! Listen, put you out of your misery, Johnny! You can have half of it, Mr. Clover. All of it. You can have anything you want. I've got what I want. Let's get your coat, Mrs. Reed. Yeah, this was this was a really good scene. Like, I think her performance was so cutting. Like, she just to, tries to kind of humiliate him at first and laughs at him. Johnny uh, takes his coffee regular, uh, which is another. Is that just a New York thing, or is that a New England thing? Of like, if you order a coffee regular, it's like two sugars and a cream. But he also drinks beer while his wife's making coffee, expecting an unexpected guest. Because uh, he had just opened a quart of beer, which is thirty, which is not forty ounces, thirty-two ounces. I, I actually had to look that up. I was like, "Huh," but it's like a big jug of beer. <laughs> um, so they were getting ready to enjoy themselves, I guess, uh, 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 or just chilling out at a long day. And then the fight scene. Yeah, there's no setup for him. He says one slug or two, uh, which was awesome. And then the fight scene was a little bit like uh, slapstick, but just because how else are you going to do it uh, and not have it be too loud or anything like that or too violent? But it also shows again that Clover's just uh, 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 like he takes out a guy with a gun, man. He's our hero. Tricks him and one ups him. Yeah. It is interesting listening to those kind of like action scenes. They don't uh, they don't last very long usually because uh, exactly to your point, you know, you get to a point where it's like, all right, we we know what we know what's happening, uh, but it does make Danny Clover off to seem like a real a real hero, <laughs> real yeah. good punch. So that's the end. Uh, you know, we get one last short monologue from Clover. You know, it doesn't really dwell on it too much. Uh, and then the credits roll. Uh, and then we also get a, a short ad for a new program featuring uh, Edward R. Murrow, who is the famed broadcaster, you know, uh, known for saying good night and good luck and all that. So, yeah, yeah, I liked that setup. And then just that this is the end of the season, which they say series, like they still use in the UK. Like I was like, oh, like, uh, 
like he's like i'm not sure when we'll be back but like uh, so not how long a break isn't clear but that makes sense too because it's the end of the holiday i mean the holidays is when most shows take some sort of hiatus yeah it's interesting i wasn't able to find well i was looking back to the episodes that we do have it looks like they came back in april of the next year and then uh yeah i'm not sure like if there was really a standard season for shows that the way, you know, you know, at least for a while with TV, it was like, okay, new TV shows start in the fall. They take a little break during the holidays, come back in the spring, you get your full 22 episode season that happens from uh, fall to spring. And you know, then you have like a summer season or whatever. Yeah. I was trying to look up. I mean, the, what, there was one thing I saw found about that time, that period where it was like talking about the expenses of making a show and it was like half of the expense was – it's funny for the internet. Like it was the – they didn't call it bandwidth back then, but it was like the charge from like AT&T or whoever to like use their line to send it out or, or whatever, wherever they were sending it. And then the other half was the production costs. And it's like, oh, wow, that's just so, so wild. Like, uh, And it seems like, yeah, the that they didn't have a lot of ads. So it probably was the kind of thing of like – one or two advertisers, and maybe I was reading that too, could sink or swim a show and be like, okay, you don't smoke enough. Danny Clover needs to smoke more if you want us to stay on or, or wash his clothes more. Yeah, there are some there are some shows. So I've listened to you know uh, a couple other shows from the era. So like Dragnet and um, This Is Your FBI uh, is a good one. And that, that one is, if you're thinking about like, oh, like Copaganda, This Is Your FBI is like directly working with the FBI and J, you know, J. Edgar Hoover to like make these like wonderful, you know, about how great the FBI is. Um, but it's a good show because they do use actual FBI files. So they are interesting. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's funny. You know, they all have different advertisers but a lot of them will have the same advertiser for like a really long period of time um so you know either there's a life insurance company that uh the equitable life uh, society has done advertising on on one of those and then cigarettes are, are a massive one of course um and then if you ever listen to old uh superman serials serials with an s they also advertise cereal with a c uh, and like toys that you can get in cereal. And it's like, oh, it's really not that different than, <laughs> you know, what it was like growing up in, at least in the 2000s, thinking about getting a toy in your cereal. Right. It's like, if any, if kids say are missing out on anything, it's a constant uh, programming of eating sugary foods uh, between being entertained or fast food. Be, be like, okay, like, uh, this, this is what I was trained for, uh, is, uh, associate my entertainment with sugar or uh e- easy to acquire calories exactly <laughs> so end of the episodes big takeaways in terms of broadway as might be or this story what'd you think i think i was i mean i really liked it uh and i, I like danny clover and i guess for me i guess the draw would be more of the Tartaglia, too, of like, okay, like the re-listenability. But this would be something that's nice. Uh, I could see it back then of like, oh, every every week I'm also looking forward to spending an hour with with, with Danny Clover. So it was fun. It, it, and, and I haven't listened to a lot of, of these detective shows. Um, and it was just also cool to see how structured the story was 
but how also it kind of fits in today. And, and it's weird because I've been reading, I wouldn't call it pulp, but it's like John D. McDonald. He wrote these novels in the 70s. They're all really short. Uh, and I have dyslexia, so it takes me forever to read. And they have a, this, uh, the, he's not a detective for the police. He helps people that, you know, are beyond, he helps people recover money that's been stolen from them that the law can't help. And, uh, and they, and like, I just got to the point where I read enough in a row where, where I was like, oh, he, he's about to solve something. I'm like, oh, somebody's going to surprise him from behind. And nevertheless, he gets hit from behind. But it's still <laughs> fun. Uh like, I mean, I guess that's why TV today, that's like one of the enduring shows on broadcast TV is like different types of procedurals, medical or investigative. Yeah. It's the same thing. If you listen to a lot of um, Broadway, this might be, and, and other procedurals of the time, like it's pretty obvious who did the crime. Like there's not a lot of like, oh, was it this person or was it this person or was it this person? You know, not like that kind of classic Sherlock Holmes thing where it's like, oh, you know, the mystery is completely up in the air until the last five minutes or whatever. But you you do definitely, you know, in the, within the first 10 minutes, you know, we understood essentially what ha- what was going to happen. You know, you just need the proof. Yeah. Do, do, so is a lot of the Broadway is my beat episodes like where you have the sense of like these two deserve a fall like johnny and daddy like like where you start to root against them uh like you're like okay i, I really want him to catch it can can they outfox danny clover the answer is no call homicide it's you know call it in not always you know I, there was one episode that i considered for for this um for this recording that was a little bit more of like a kind of a mental illness uh, situation where like, uh, you know, she kind of, she couldn't really help it. And then it was her sister trying to like, just cover it up so that she wasn't like sent away to a a mental institution. And, you know, it is the fifties. So it's like at the, you know, you can, you can definitely empathize with that of like, I would, I would probably cover up my sister's murder so that uh, she didn't go get lobotomized uh, in some institution as well. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I definitely think, you know, I, I don't think that was necessarily the text of that show. I don't think that was, you know, you were supposed to be rooting for uh, <laughs> the sister. But uh, I, I, it's definitely not as clear cut of like, oh, all of these people are horrible um, as this episode was. <laughs> yeah. So not like, uh, uh, like, yeah, so modern TV shows I'm thinking of like, uh, where it's like, oh, these, I, I love the show. I can't stand anyone on it. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, you're not really meant to uh I don't think you empathize much with the with the criminal. In the midnight cold, Broadway echoes with sounds you hear only in darkness. The fleeting whispers that speckle places where there's no sun. People pass and touch you. You look down, and there are fingers of dust on your shoulder. It's Broadway, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway, my beat. Thank you, Drew. Uh, where can uh, where can everybody find you if after this they want to uh, have something nice and relaxing to uh, fall asleep to? Yeah, I was trying to think of like a version of the story for Sleep with Me. Uh, you could if you listen if you have your podcast app that you're listening to this show and Sleep with Me podcast is the name of my show. You can find it there and. Uh, Check it out. It's a bit strange, but hopefully if you're looking for something to fall asleep or keep you company and old time radio does not fit the bill, check it out. 
Cool. Thanks, Drew. Thanks again. I'll see, next time I see you, will be on the Great White Way, hopefully. <laughs> on the uh, lonesomest mile in the world. Thanks again to Drew Ackerman for joining. Broadway is my beat is my beat. You can find his podcast, Sleep With Me, in pretty much any podcast app, including maybe the one that you're using to listen to Nightwater. Broadway is my beat is my beat. I also want to thank the Old Time Radio Researchers Group, who have put together hundreds of collections of episodes of old time radio shows on archive.org, freely available for anyone to listen to or download, along with some great additional resources and information about the shows. If you like this podcast, let me know at nightwater.email and make sure to hit that subscribe button. If you're feeling especially generous, you can sign up for a paid subscription to help support the newsletter. You'll get special bonus materials on a monthly basis uh, as a thank you. Um, And also, I'll just thank you. Email me. I'll send you a thank you. I'll say thank you. This has been Broadway is my beat is my beat. The gaudiest, the most violent the lonesomest old-time radio show in the world. Dan Coverly speaking. This is CBS, the star's address, the Columbia Broadcasting System.